And and we are a hundred percent certain that it, you don't have to remember them. And the main reason is that on a good morning, I mean, over a good night, people might remember fifteen minutes worth of dream content, whereas in fact they're probably over eight hours dreaming at least six hours. So either you know we're losing ninety percent. Of the value of our dreams, or that value has to be served, even if we don't remember the dream. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Bob Stickgold from the Centre of Sleep and Cognition in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Bob. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining me. So today we're here to talk about, you released a book in about 12, 18 months ago, When Brains Dream, uh, a brilliant read on the research you've primarily you've conducted in your team on the science of dreaming uh so we're going to explore what dreams mean today and how it can help us and before that we need to understand i think sleep so before we dive into all things dream related out of curiosity you've been in this area for several decades uh how did you get into to sleep and dreaming and, and what was the sort of the the views of dreams back then in the sort of scientific community? Well, I got into this somewhere around 93, 94, so 30 years ago now. And the situation was in flux. Until the mid-1970s, Freud was really still the only game in town. Uh, and then in 1975, I think, Alan Hobson and Bob McCarley published their activation synthesis model of dreaming which seemed to argue that dreams were just noise of the brain and not particularly interesting or meaningful. Um, in fact, that's not what Hobson believed, but, but that's how his, his work came across, and he was happy to push that model because it irritated the Freudians so much. Yeah. Um, and so then after about 1975, um, there was this slow move towards acceptance of activation synthesis, which argues that the Dreaming is the result of the um, random chaotic activation of neural networks in the brainstem, which the brain then tries to interpret as best they can. Um, and so it's activation and then synthesis. And whereas the activation was thought to be um, truly random, um, the synthesis he dodged around a lot about and actually um, personally had a very psychodynamic view of dreaming. Um, but again, nothing on function. Right. And even for Freud, remember in Freud, the function of dreams are to prevent the brain from the mind from waking you up by presenting all of these disturbing um, drives and desires that the person had. 
um, it, it distorted those drives and, and made a dream that was more palatable and allowed the person to sleep. So the function of dreaming was to help you stay asleep. And then the function of dreaming was nothing at all. And so that's, that's kind of where it was coming up into the late 80s and 90s. And a lot of dream researchers have been always unhappy with this. To them, dreams needed to have a more meaningful function than either to keep you asleep or to do nothing, except, as Hobson said, sort of MTV for your sleep. <laughs> um, so, so that's sort of where it was coming up to the time um, of, of our books. There were people who were talking about cognitive functions of dreaming, memory functions for dreaming, um, but not in ter terribly coherent and, and widespread ways. Okay. And sort of in the, the layman's view, in, in the public perception, it seems obviously since time memorial that the dreams have had this mysterious element and people are trying to have been trying to interpret it and interpret dreams for a long time and the specific events trying to make meaning of it what was a sort of uh view in say science and was there um any sort of recognition of that or does, does that make sense like um for for the public yes, like it does make these sense. Meanings? yeah so so most of science and most of sleep researchers um, wanted to avoid the subject like the plague. They felt that it was either not able to be researched because all you had are people's own verbal reports of what happened um, or just not interesting. So in the scientific community, there was a real vacuum sort of around, around what dreams were about, how they were constructed or whether they even serve the function at all. But I think you're right. I mean, you can track back dream interpretation to um, Gilgamesh, which was a, it, it's the oldest written story in history. It's around two or 3,000 BC. And it's full of dream interpretation. So there's, there's nothing new about this. People have mm. been fascinated uh, by our dreams and wanting to know what they mean, um, arguably forever. Yeah. All right. Well, I think your model, this next up model, which we'll get to, I think is a great framework to help understand dreams. Uh, to get to that, we need to first look at sleep and um, how sleep can help with our memory evolution. People are probably aware of the benefits of sleep from the, the uh, physiological benefits from you know a weight and growth and insulin sensitivity. Um. You make a good argument that the primary role of sleep is for memory evolution. Can you d describe that? Sure. And, and I don't know that I want to say it's the primary function. It okay. might, might have been the original um, evolutionary function for it, but there are many other functions like immune functions, like endocrine functions, which have also been sort of grafted onto sleep, which arguably are in their own way equally important. Memory evolution um, is, is a recasting of a concept of memory consolidation. Back in the 1950s, they sort of came to, researchers sort of came to understand that once a memory is formed, it has to be stabilized. It has to be what they called consolidated, to put it into a, an altered form um, where it would go into long-term memory and be available 
um, over long periods of time. Most of the memories that we form, um, we forget within a few hours and certainly by the next day. I mean, you walk out your front door, you notice a, a truck parked across the street, you form a memory of it, and it's gone 10 minutes later. Uh, the ones that you choose or your brain selects for consolidation are the ones that last longer. And the idea was that that happened within a few hours from the time the memory was formed. And what has become clear, very clear since then, is that that process of, of, of memory consolidation or memory evolution, as we call it, goes on at least for several nights. And if you stop and think about it, it goes on for years and years. I mean, our memories of events from our past are always evolving. All you have to do is sit with your parents when they're talking about um, some event that happened a decade ago. And my father remembers that very well. And my uncle was there. And my mother says, no, your uncle, you know, your brother couldn't make it that night. And so they have, their memories have evolved to only keep different pieces of the memory. Mm -hmm. And over time, our memories become um, integrated with other memories. We um, extract key features of, of a memory and let the rest be forgotten. So most of us remember our college graduation. Very few of us remember what the president of the college said in his address up in front of everybody. Um, and, and so there's all these ways that we, we alter our memories after they're formed. So altogether, we call this now memory evolution. And a lot of it happens while we're asleep. A lot of it doesn't happen while we're awake. So over the last 25 years, my lab and several others have been showing that for even something as simple as if I train people to type the sequence 41324 over and over on the keyboard, They'll get maybe 60% faster over 10 minutes and then plateau. But if I bring them back the next day, they'll be 20% faster. Whereas if I just bring them back after a daytime awake, they're no faster at all. If I teach them word pairs so that they have to be able to remember the second word if I tell them the first word, um, across 12 hours of daytime waking, they might forget a third of them or half of them. But over a night of sleep, equally long period of time, they don't forget any. And then they don't forget any across the following wake. So it's clear that sleep specifically is stabilizing those memories. We can teach people to play logic games, and they will get better at them overnight. So there's all sorts of ways that memories are reviewed, processed, enhanced while we sleep, trying to produce, we argue, uh, the more you the most useful possible version of a memory. Yeah. Uh, I was really struck in the book and there's great uh, evidence and I, I love some of the experiments they did to, to demonstrate all this sleep and um, memory, uh, re dream reporting and so forth when they wake them up, which is really fascinating. But what struck me with the book, and I've heard others speak about this idea about this memory evolution, I just want to come back to... Um, our memories, as you point out, are not like a facsimile um, representation of what occurred. And I think you said in the book, memories are about not the past, but the future, how we want to, you know, move through the future. And therefore, we deliberately forget some concepts, we reinforce some concepts. And the sleep is about um, 
helping you potentially solve problems and and refining skills that you, you're learning in there's as you mentioned like the the memory and i think playing instruments and so forth it seems what's important is retained and reinforced and what's not so important is sort of cleansed and discarded can you just underscore this idea that the memory it's not just a a, a carbon copy of the past but it's it's con- constantly shaped for to make you a better person in the future yes so um one of the things uh, I've said in one of my papers is that in the morning you end up with a memory that might be less accurate but more useful. And that was for a, a study where we had people listen to a tape that had uh, lists of words on them. And all the, each, list, each list had words that were very closely related. It would be bed, night, dream, doze, moon, pillow, um, but it wouldn't have the word sleep, which is the word around which the list was created. And if you test people afterwards and ask them just 20 minutes later to write down all the words they remember that they heard, they invariably write down sleep, <laughs> even though they didn't remember it because, because their brain already is extracting the fact that all these other words are about sleep. And what happens is interesting. If you train them in the morning and then test them in the evening, they forget, I don't know, 40% of the words that they heard that they could recall immediately afterwards. Um, And they forget about an equal number of those, what we call critical lures, the words that uh, we try to get them to think they're remembering. Um, But over a night of sleep, while they're forgetting more of those words that they actually heard, they're holding on to those critical lures. So their memory becomes less accurate in a way, but arguably more useful because in a way, all that's important to remember is there's a list of words about sleep. And if you can remember that, then when you're trying to recall the individual words, you can say, okay, what are the words about sleep? And it helps organize your recall process. So, so the brain isn't interested in in remembering what happens so much as it is in trying to store information that will be useful going forward. So when you, you're driving along and you look in your rearview mirror and you see the rotating light of a police car, you don't want to immediately remember every time you've been pulled over. You want to remember how you talked yourself, talked your way out of a ticket that one time because that's what's going to be useful now. And that'll be the memory that that hopefully pops to your mind at that time. Mm, so interesting. All right. Well, I want to dive into it in your book. You you list and numerous uh, benefits to our memories on sleep from and um, motor skills as, as well. So there's a whole list. And um, I wanted to compare and contrast this to. The stages of sleep and sleep architecture because it seems like uh, we almost go through this cycle and I think you use a, a, I've heard you use a, like a, a high school analogy we go to different classes each day to, to learn different functions and different parts of the brain switch on and off so we get this sort of um, holistic uh, uh, memory con- um, evolution process going on over the duration of a, a night's sleep so first of all can you step us through the stages of sleep and maybe highlight some of the key parts of the brain and i think there's like certain neurotransmitters that are dominate and quieten through these cycles sure um 
So when you go to sleep, you enter. So, so sleep is basically divided in humans into REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep uh, and non-REM sleep. And then non-REM sleep gets broken into light non-REM sleep or N2 sleep and then deep non-REM sleep, which is either called N3 or slow wave sleep because the EEG in this stage shows large, slow oscillations of brain activity. And across the night, it's a 90-minute cycle in humans where people go down into non-REM sleep, down into slow-wave sleep, then come up to lighter sleep, go into REM sleep. And then after a while in REM, they go back down through N2 into slow-wave sleep and back up. And this 90-minute cycle continues pretty constant in its time all night long. But most of that deep, slow-wave sleep happens in the first couple of cycles, and most of the REM sleep comes in the last couple of cycles. Um, from the point of view of brain activity, pretty much the whole brain quiets down as you go into slow-wave sleep. So if you look at glucose consumption or oxygen consumption uh, in a PET scan and a positron emission tomography scan, you see that there's about a 20% reduction um, in, in brain activity as, as measured metabolically uh, in slow-wave sleep. And then as you come up into REM sleep, you get this differentiated pattern um, where some regions like um, the limbic system um, or association cortices become more active again, becoming as active or even more active than they were during wake. Um, and other regions, most notably dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, a mouthful of a name, um, which is involved in executive control, rational thinking, logical thinking, um, impulse control, that region becomes even more deactivated. So when you're in REM sleep, you've got the limbic system, which is really your emotional brain, um, highly active. And dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, sort of your rational, logical brain, very inactive. And so if you think about dream content, that's what it looks like. It tends to be much more emotional than normal life is and much less rational. Impulse control seems to be gone. Planning seems to be gone. You just seem to be following the dream along rather than stopping and thinking, what should I do? Um, so that... that that change in brain um, activity um, is probably part of what drives the actual form of dreaming, especially in REM sleep. But if you look at the neuromodulators of the brain, you see huge changes too. So when you go into REM sleep, which is where it's most noticeable, uh, the brain release of norepinephrine and serotonin are completely shut off. And all that's left really in terms of neuromodulators is acetylcholine and some dopamine. And the acetylcholine levels uh, in regions like the hippocampus are even higher, again, than they are during wake, which is interesting because, you know, the hippocampus is where we form our memories and where we recall, from where we recall at least recent memories. And again, acetylcholine is critical for those processes. And so they're active and even hyperactive during REM sleep. So that's sort of the play of the, the brain across it. And then if you look at, if you look at 
what we know about memory processing. Well, memory processing depends on different sleep stages based on what's being done. If you're just memorizing facts, what we call episodic memories, memories are things that have happened, actual um, memories that we can recall to mind, that tends to happen early in the night during slow wave sleep. And what happens later in the night in REM sleep, the kinds of memory processing that seems to happen there are those that are more involved in integrating new memories into old networks of older memories, um, extracting patterns, uh, discovering, for example, how a logic game works or something like that. Um, and, and so when we're trying to extract new information from the memories in a different form almost, um, that seems to happen in REM sleep. Um, the, the motor skill learning, the learning how to tap the, the sequence on the keyboard, how to play the piano, that turns out to be in this light non-REM sleep, uh, this N2 stage. And, and, and I've argued that, that the actual evolution of different sleep stages might in fact have been driven by this need to produce different neurophysiological, neurochemical, uh, neuroanatomical patterns for different types of memory processing. Obviously, what you need to do to memorize a number sequence like 6249385543 is very different from what your brain has to do to, to strengthen a memory of how to tap a sequence on a keyboard or to extract a pattern from a large number of stimuli that were presented. And so the brain might have, you know, for its millions of years of, of mammalian evolution, it might have evolved these different physiological, neurochemical, uh, neuroanatomical patterns um, to optimize those types of processing in different stages of sleep. Thank you. Just want to go back to the, the REM, maybe it's the most sort of alluring and creative, but it, yes. as I understand, it feels like in the first half of the sleep, it's you're doing your STEM, your STEM um, subjects, then you're <laughs> back into the day, you're doing your arts and humanities. And um, Well, but, but another way to say that is before you go out there and try to figure out how to improve a memory, how to, to shape a memory, how to enhance a memory, how to integrate a memory, you have to make sure it's there. Mm. And that slow wave sleep portion of the night, early on in the first couple of cycles, seems to be what sort of nails those memories down. It's, it's what all of our teachers said to our great annoyance. Before we can interpret what we're learning, we have to learn it. Okay. Yeah, so like wrote learning the, the times tables perhaps and then, yes. then be on it. Yeah. So just to, to underscore that the REM, it seems like the, as I understand, the noradrenaline, which gives you the, the focus at times, that's that's diminished the, the serotonin. It sounds almost like, and I'm not an expert here, the, like a, almost a psychedelic-induced state where there's this sort of divergent thinking is unleashed. Can you, is that similar, true? Is it, can you just describe this sort of divergent um, thinking and how the brain, that the, the strong connections are sort of attenuated so we can start searching and making different connections? Sure. So if you think about norepinephrine or noradrenaline, those are the 
British and American That's words, right. which are, are cousins of adrenaline. Uh, adrenaline is a, is a hormone that, amongst other things, sharpens our focus, our attention. It gives us razor-sharp focus of attention. So if I'm working on a grant and it's due tomorrow, I don't want my student to come in and say, I've just come up with a great idea of what we can add to the grant proposal. I say, get out of here, go away, it's due tomorrow, I'm just staying focused on this. Um, and when you shut off that release of noradrenaline or norepinephrine in the brain, that sort of razor-sharp focus of attention dissolves. And we've done experiments where we wake people up either from REM sleep, when we know that that release has been shut off, or from light non-REM sleep when it's still being released at pretty much waking levels, and then ask people to do cognitive tasks that measure how easy it is for them to let their mind wander a bit. Um, it's completely different. It's really in REM sleep, it, it's unbounded. Um, in fact, it's, it's the mind seems to be faster at making um, unusual associations than it is at making normal associations. And of course, the difference between diversion and convergent thinking has to do with that issue of when the brain has some body of knowledge, it can do sort of one of two things. It can try to focus in and extract the core of it, find out how are these 10 items similar, right? And, and try to extract for example, that word sleep, which describes mm. that whole set. but the, And that's convergent thinking. It, it's having all those words converge on a single um, focus and answer as it is. Uh, divergent thinking is going the other way. It's saying, okay, you heard all these words. Um, what other words are even further away that you might think of? So, you know, you're thinking of, you know, you're thinking now of clouds because clouds are sort of like dreams or something. It becomes a more divergent form um, of thinking and of memory processing. And that's important because that seems to be a key function of dreaming. Um, is So, mm. I don't know if you're ready to... Yeah, that's my, that was going to be my next question. So, yeah, we, you've... I described really well the importance of sleep to go through the, the gears for want of a better term of, of memory evolution so what do we need to dream then like if does sleep cover all this or what what's the benefits above and beyond sleep that dreaming offers so all of those types of memory processing that i've been talking about are really examples of convergent thinking it's taking a bunch of um, information you gained and being better able to answer a predictable question the next morning. It's all convergent. We think, and when I say we, I'm including my co-author of our book, Tony Zadra, um, we think that the function of dreaming is really about divergent thinking. It's about, so, so the model we came up with is called NEXT UP, and it's an acronym for Neural Network Exploration to Understand Possibilities. So, you know, if you have a dream, and it's a dream, you know, during the day you uh, played a lot of tennis, and it was the first time you played in the season, and that night you have a dream that was obviously about playing tennis, but it's not a dream that's going to help you play tennis better tomorrow. I mean, you're dreaming about playing tennis in 
in a swimming pool or playing tennis with bananas instead of <laughs> tennis balls. And you can't figure out why the hell your brain is doing this. And what your brain is doing is it's looking for those weakly associated memories, those ones in that study I mentioned earlier, the brain could find faster in REM sleep than the normal associations. It's looking for weak associations to ask the question, Here, here's, this, here's an association to an older memory that Bob would never have thought of when he was awake. Is this useful or is this just, you know, a waste of the brain's time to, to have found it. And so the question is, it's pretty easy to um, put the brain in a neurochemical mode where it will tend to find these more distant associations. The game is to then evaluate them and decide, is this a useful association? And the way the brain does that is it takes this new association and it builds it into a narrative into a story, uh, into a dream, in fact, which the brain then watches. And it's by watching, here we get into a strange statement, so I'll just say, by having your brain watch your responses in the dream, which of course are your brains in another part of the brain, it's responses to the hallucinations that it's observing, it looks and sees if those reactions are strong and emotional. Right. And if so, so, so if it watches, if it watches a dream where you're now um, playing uh, tennis with bananas and there's not much emotional response in the dream to it, then your brain would tend to say, okay, forget this association, it's probably not useful. But if you're playing it in a swimming pool and you're just, thrashing around trying to get to the ball and saying, I can't move fast enough. There's something impeding my movement. I have to learn to move faster. And you get all upset and angry about this. Then your brain says, okay, maybe this is useful. And it takes that connection between being in the swimming pool and playing tennis, and it literally strengthens the synaptic, the, the neuronal connections between those two memories. So that tomorrow, when you're thinking about playing tennis, you say to yourself, God, I feel like I was slogging through water yesterday when I was playing. Hmm. And then you sort of, you might remember the dream, and you might not. You might say, that's a weird analogy to come up with. But yeah, that's what it felt like. I really have to work on my legs. It's not my stroke that I have to get better to get better at tennis. It's the strength of my legs and my ability to move faster. And you might have no idea where that came up came from. And you certainly, if you were thinking about playing tennis, you would never think of like being in water. It's just not an association that would come up. So what your brain is doing is it's going through its, its files, if you will, of weakly associated memories and then testing them. And the reason you have to dream is because that's the only way the brain can construct these narratives. If you try to solve a problem as simple as what are you going to have for dinner tonight? I mean, you actually walk through it, right? Walk through it as a, as a series of steps. You say, well, 
what do I have in the refrigerator? And you sort of imagine looking in the refrigerator and seeing what you have. And then you see something and you say, no, that doesn't look like something I want. Well, maybe I have to go shopping. And then you say, oh, but if I, have to, if I go shopping, that's going to take that's going to take an hour. And do I have an hour? And so you, you're playing this out. And Antonio Damasio um, in Iowa, now in California, in Iowa, when he wrote his book, uh, The Feeling of What Happens, argues that the function of consciousness, in fact, is to let you create these imagined scenarios. So you can imagine these different futures and use those imagined futures to to better plan your long-time, long-term um, goals and, and methods of reaching them. And he said, you can't do that without being conscious. You can, your brain cannot construct these just in the background. You can step off a curb and your brain will measure the distance from the curb to the pavement and adjust the activity of your muscles so that you come down nice and calmly um, without needing to be conscious of it. Your brain doesn't need consciousness for that. But if it wants to do planning, if it wants to do evaluation, it needs consciousness. And so the sleeping brain wanting to explore these weak associations actually has to dream. So one of the big questions is whether dreaming is just an epiphenomenon. As one author wrote, um, is it just the case that evolution forgot to turn consciousness off when it invented sleep, but that it doesn't do anything of its own? And based on Damasio's view, we've, we've taken the position that, no, you actually have to consciously dream. You have to have awareness while you're dreaming of that dream in, able, in order to be able to make those emotional evaluations and decide whether or not the connection is a good one or not. Mm. So to me, it highlights the sort of the dreams have this emotional sort of valence or strength, which helps sort of strengthen the the connection between these two memories and is it like rather than uh, us and being like um is it spock from star trek that's very sort of rational and logic and makes lists and right. just sort of weighs out the pros and cons it, it creates that sort of emotional almost your intuitional valence that helps you be able to process and make a decision yeah and in fact Damasio would argue that all of your decisions are emotional even if you're trying to figure out what you know what's eight times seven and you go 40 40 56 56 and then you make an emotional evaluation you say yeah that's right and it feels right it feels good um and and we look at those emotional decisions those emotional responses in most of our decision making um you go to the library you get out a new book to read and you could do it very logically based on what you've read in the past. And then you flip through a few pages and you say, nah, you make these fast emotional responses. Um, and in the end, even the most rational decisions in the last step um, are made on an emotional basis. And there are people who have lesions of the amygdala, which is the brain center involved in several types of emotional processing. And they can't make the simplest decisions um, they look at a person's face and they can't decide if that person is looking happy or not um, they can 
They can do a gambling task and can't get that feeling that they're doing well or they're not doing well. Um, they run into a lot of problems on the street because they can't read people's faces because they can see the face and actually, if you have them sit down and write about it, describe all the features of it that make it a an angry face. But when they see the person coming towards them, they have no fear. They have no anxiety because their brain can't do that. So we're using emotions to make all of our decisions, really, in wow. the end. Yeah. And probably I'm sh- I'd suggest that the question you may get asked most frequently is, um, is it important to recall dreams for this function to, to work? And, and we are 100% certain that it, you don't have to remember them. And the main reason is that on a good morning, I mean, over a good night, people might remember 15 minutes worth of dream content. Whereas, in fact, they're probably over eight hours dreaming at least six hours. So either, you know, we're losing 90% of the value of our dreams, or that value has to be served even if we don't remember the dream. Which doesn't mean that remembering the dream doesn't have its own separate value. Mm. Um, it's a little bit like the, the sound of a heartbeat. You know, our brain, our hearts didn't evolve to make a sound. It, it's a pump, and pumps make sounds. There's no, nothing more to it than that. But a doctor can listen to that sound and learn a lot about the condition of your heart. So, so that information can be equally valuable when you remember a dream. If you do remember that dream about, being, about playing tennis in a swimming pool, you might just think that that was the goofiest thing that you ever heard, ever dreamt. I mean, what a ridiculous thing. Or you might actually catch the connection to how slowly you move in water and how slowly you were moving yesterday on the court. Um, but you might not make it consciously. But you would say, okay, there was something about that tennis game that obviously provoked me to think about it again in my dreams. And I wonder what that's about. Mm. Thank you. All right. I want to just quickly touch upon some health conditions and um, the benefits or the contribution that dreaming or a lack of um, may have on that. The one that stands out in your book was PTSD. And I think you make an argument that it's a almost like a sleep-related disorder or a dream-related disorder. Can you describe this um, in the context of memory and almost memory erasure to help move on? Sure. It turns out that after a traumatic event, you don't want to forget it. That's, that's very maladaptive. If something happened that was really traumatic, you want to remember it, and you want to remember it in a form that will help you avoid it in the future, or if it's unavoidable, to respond to it more effectively. And my wife is actually a a trauma therapist, and we've had long conversations about it. There are many things that you want to do when you have a traumatic memory. First of all, you want to tone down the emotional response when you recall it. You want to be able to recall it and not get as upset as you were at the time. Um, You want to take 
out of the memory all the details that are irrelevant, which is what we do with most of our memories. Um, you, you want to see how it connects to other events in your life and see how you can move forward in your life based on what you know about your life so far and, and, and actually help develop a way to think about the trauma that will let you move forward in your life. And all of those sort of memory processing um, steps are ones that are particularly well carried out during sleep. So sleep is very good for extracting the meaning of something. It's good for reducing the subsequent emotional response to recall of it. It helps you forget the details of an event and just keep the core memory. Um, and, and yet, if you have PTSD, none of those things happen. It's almost as if the brain's sleep-dependent memory evolution processes were shut down in regard to that particular memory. Now, dreaming comes into this because if we look at the dreams of people, and I made up that example of a dream about playing tennis, people in their dreams don't replay the tennis game. They don't see themselves back on the tennis court playing the same person in the same weather. They, they, they dream about it in a strangely metaphorical, disconnected way. The only people who ever recall, ever have dreams that seem to actually replay their memories are patients with PTSD who replay the traumatic event in a near veridical form. Wow. And, and what we think is that that is, again, a sign of this failure of sleep-dependent memory processing, that what they should be doing when they dream about, let's say, a car accident where their spouse was killed. They want to imagine, you know, they want to have these strange dreams about traveling somewhere on a pogo stick um, or, or swimming in the river to get somewhere and, and you know, coming up with, with all these dreams about other ways to move around so that maybe you can avoid this by not driving so much. Or if there are particulars in the dream, you know, if there was a, somebody who ran a red light, you know, you could have all these dreams about stoplights being huge or small or under the seat of your car or something that, that let, you, let you reintegrate this traumatic event with memories from your life. Because that's, that's how we create meaning. When we create the meaning of something in our life, it's all about how it fits up in with other memories we have of our life. How does this fit together with other things? And, and people with PTSD can't do that. And it might be, again, that these dreams that they're having are a sign of, of this failure of memory processing. And it might just be because they can't shut off norepinephrine mm -hmm. in, in REM sleep. We know from other studies that they remain hypervigilant while they're asleep. And if you actually look at the at, at the metabolites of norepinephrine, which can be found in the urine, normally it goes down dramatically as people sleep. Uh, and people with PTSD can actually go up. So they probably wow. aren't able to shift into that mode where they don't recall the actual memory 
and are able to explore um, these memory networks, which might contain clues about how to move forward. Interesting. I, th- I think I heard you mention another podcast, your wife does um, EMDR, which you, you touched upon. Does that almost sort of mimic REM sleep? And is that why there is some evidence that EMDR is effective for, for PTSD? That That's actually a theory. It's actually a theory that precedes my meeting her, but EMDR is what brought us together because people said right. to me, you're, you're a sleep researcher, a dream researcher. You have to talk to these people because in EMDR, for people who don't know, it stands for eye movement uh, desensitization and reprocessing. And it was basically a discovery by this woman, Francine Shapiro, that if you move your eyes back and forth, left to right, left to right, left to right, while you think about some problem, and in her case, it was an emotional problem, it seems to help resolve it. it seems to help you um, come to peace with it and, and to integrate it. So it's, it's eye movement desensitization, so you don't get upset by it so much, and reprocessing, because the idea is that that memory, in, in PTSD, that memories get frozen, is their term, in the brain, in their original form. And don't go through these steps of what I would call memory evolution and what they call memory reprocessing. Right. So it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And you can make a, a, a physiological argument that when they move their eyes back and forth, they're effectively blocking norepinephrine release. It turns out that when you want to shift your attention, the first thing you have to do is stop norepinephrine release because that's keeping you focused on on what you're currently attending to. In fact, if you just hook up a a heart monitor, a heart recorder um, to someone and then play a loud bang, what you get is an initial cardiac deceleration for one heartbeat, Mm -hmm. and then you get that big increase that you notice. But that deceleration for one heartbeat is because norepinephrine release is being shut off and acetylcholine is going up. And that allows you to disconnect your attention ah. and then shift it to, to right. wherever you heard that sound. So if you're constantly shifting your attention to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, as you follow someone's finger moving back and forth, for example, you're constantly blocking this norepinephrine release. And hmm. that that might cause a desensitization, that is to say a reduction in emotional um, strength of the response because, of course, if you reduce adrenaline, that's what's going to happen. Um, and it also facilitates this reprocessing of the memory. So we've referred to it as sort of jump-starting uh, REM sleep processing. Yeah, yeah, interesting, fascinating. Wow, that's a whole nother podcast there I need to get into. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, well, just to wrap up, I, I don't want to give away all the um, highlights of the book, but just for people that are interested in the book, you discuss numerous ways on how people can uh, increase their, their dream recall. Um, I think there's some really good content around sleep hygiene. Um, I suppose, yeah, any other features, lucid dreaming, nightmares, it covers a lot. Um, any other, just quickly, 
features or areas of the book you just want to highlight that we haven't touched just, on today? Just to point out, we had, I think, a very fun chapter on whether dreams involve ESP, whether we... Oh, yes, that's right. Um, yeah, some amazing experiments. from the future, <laughs> and, and we have a lot of fun with that. You have to read it to decide what we decided about that. Um, Tony wrote some wonderful chapters at the beginning about uh, the history of dream research, which goes back 100 years before Freud in terms of serious scientific studies of dreaming. Um, he puts a beautiful new spin on, on the Freudian interpretation. Um, so for people who are interested in that history or in the Freudian psychoanalytic approach, um, those first few chapters, I think, would be a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Great read, um, When Brains Dream. Any uh, online bookstores? Do you have any other resources, websites? Um, any Tony, other, Tony uh, Zadra will have a, a dream um, website. Um, with lots of discussions going on. I'm, I'm sort of a yep. Luddite in that respi- respect and <laughs> have nothing of use online. Um, if people have access to scientific journals, I've got a couple of published articles on the sleep and EMDR question um, and, and lots on, on the sleep and memory. Great. Well, I'll put those links in the, in the show notes. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. It's so fascinating. Uh, thank you for all your work. It's yeah, so illuminating and really shed new light to me on dreams. And yeah, I look forward to trying to record my dreams now and moving forward. I put more, play, pay more attention to them. Yeah, enjoy them. <laughs> thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.